Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. All right. For those who are staying with us in the sanctuary, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Tonight we are doing a prophecy update. Next Wednesday we'll have our Thanksgiving service, a family service next week, and uh, desserts following. And then we'll, uh, after that, get back into finishing out the book of Deuteronomy. I believe I have four chapters left to finish out that book. But tonight we're going to do a prophecy update. And I, for the most part, this year we've been going through First and Second Thessalonians for our prophecy update. And I said for the most part in January I used a different passage of Scripture, but began... Um, in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen, in February, and then we kind of stayed with it until I broke my neck, and then I had a couple of months off, and there was no prophecy updates. And last month I did a message from Genesis about Israel and the promise, but we're back, and I want to finish out Second Thessalonians chapter three, but I'm only going to do five verses, and. I use First and Second Thessalonians. I started in First Thessalonians 4:13 because Paul began then talking about end time events, and much of First or Second Thessalonians chapters one and two, uh, he went on to discuss end time events. He is not talking about those things in chapter three. He's kind of wrapping up his letter. Not a very long letter to the church in Thessalonica, but he's wrapping up the letter. And I thought when I originally looked at it that, well, maybe this will be an odd passage to use for prophecy update, but I'm stubborn, so I just kept working on it and uh, have been Monday and a little bit on Tuesday and then today uh, spending time getting ready for our study tonight and had a majority of it done before I went to lunch and and it was during that lunch break that I thought, oh, I know this is really perfect because Paul has just talked about some very great and marvelous end time events, a great apostasy that would take place uh, in the last days to the church. And then what are you supposed to do with that? Sometimes we hear about end time events and stuff from the word of God and it makes us nervous, it makes us uneasy. Uh, we look around the circumstances that is going on in our world and we get nervous and we get uneasy and uh, we have many reasons for doing that. But Paul, he throws in a finally, brethren, here in Second Thessalonians 3 verse 1. 
and he talks about a few things that they should be doing in the time that they were living in, things that I believe that would be good for us to be doing as well. In chapter 3, not talking about end-time events at this point, but I believe giving us perfect words for the church today as we are seemingly watching last-day events unfold before our eyes, he first encourages them to pray for the gospel to have its impact amid an unreasonable and wicked generation. And then he reminds the church that the Lord is faithful and that he will establish and guard us from the evil one. And finally, he encourages the church to have confidence in the Lord, that they would walk in the ways of the Lord, that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So in these five verses, some pretty terrific things that I believe that we need today in our world that seems to be crumbling around us with a current war in Israel and also in Ukraine and Russia and the Palestinians in Gaza and that October 7th attack, which we'll talk about as we go through the teaching tonight, some of these things and how we are getting a sense of how far our own nation has fallen away from the things of God by their response to a horrific attack that took place on October 7th with killing, raping, mutilating, kidnapping um, innocent Jews. And the entire world seems to be rallying to the defense not of Israel, but of Hamas, although there was a great uh, stand for Israel uh, just this week in Washington that is very encouraging. So let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless the teaching of his word tonight. And we thank you, Father, for uh, giving us this word of encouragement that we so desperately need to hear in the day and age that we live in. Help us, Lord, to be aware of what's going on in our world, but know, Lord, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So, Lord, being aware doesn't mean that we have to walk in fear, but, Lord, help us to have confidence, as Paul writes to the church there in Thessalonica, that they should have, knowing, Lord, that you are faithful and that you will guard and protect our lives. So bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So not wanting to uh, pick up all of the texts of this, it's not really a long chapter, 18 verses, but because I'll be talking about some of the events going on in the world, I didn't want to have too much text and not enough time to talk about some of the things that's happening in Israel and in our country today. So five verses, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to go ahead and read the context, and then we'll break it down. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful 
who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So it begins in verse 1, praying that the gospel would have impact. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the impact of the gospel. But initially, Paul says, pray for us. So Paul here requesting prayer for the missionary team and specifically stating what the prayer need is, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. So Paul is saying, just as God is working there in Thessalonica among the believers, we are asking that you would pray that God's word would run swiftly and that God's word would be glorified. The message of the gospel in the lives of those who believe in him. And when living in difficult times, Paul understood that when we pray for others, we join in the battle of faith with others. And Paul often asked that the believers would pray for him. Not only did he request prayer here, but in Romans 15:30, he said, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayer to God for me. Strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So Paul basically saying, I'm praying that God would help me and be with me. Would you join me in that prayer? In my prayers to God for me. In 2 Corinthians 1.11, he said, You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted us through many. So prayer for thanksgiving, but thanks that would be given for many persons, speaking about the spread of the gospel, the work of the gospel, the ministry that God had granted Paul and those who ministered alongside him. In Colossians 4.3, he said, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Here Paul is in prison, and he's still praying for the spread of the gospel and for the courage to speak the word of God, that the door for the word would be opened and the mystery of Christ would be proclaimed. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Paul simply stated, Brethren, pray for us. And sometimes that's all we need to do. Sometimes, as Paul did in a few of these examples, you might have specific things that you can ask somebody to join you in prayer for. And sometimes you might just say, could you pray for me? And, and say nothing specifically. But Paul placed a high value on prayer, his own and the prayers of others. One of the old-time theologians, Matthew Henry, wrote about praying together. He said this is one way by which the communion of the saints is kept up, not only by their praying together or with one another, but by their praying for one another. 
when they are absent from one another. And thus those who are at great distance may meet together at the throne of grace. Thus those who are not capable of doing or receiving any other kindness may yet this way do and receive real and very great kindness by praying for one another. I was uh, many years ago delivering some groceries to someone's house and and they were shut in. Um, personally, in this situation, I think they were themselves causing, just not by not wanting to go out, they were definitely um, young enough and capable of leaving, I believe, leading a productive life, but they were not at that place at that time. And the person said, here I am stuck in this house and I can do nothing. I can do nothing. I said, no, that's not true. I said, right now my wife is battling cancer. You can pray for us. You can pray for us. Even though you might be in a house, there's something that you can do. And I'd appreciate those prayers. And I believe the Lord is calling us as a fellowship to be a people of prayer, to be praying for one another. Uh, when we're not with one another, we can join at the throne of grace. As Paul said in this first verse, that pray that the word of the Lord would have free course and that God's word would be glorified. And that's a good prayer for us to hold to even this day. Paul desired that the word of the Lord would have free course, that it would be without any hindrance, that God would be glorified among the people, bringing honor and praise to the Lord, that God's word would be renowned among the people as it was in the church in Thessalonica. In Psalm 138, 2, it says, I will worship toward your holy temple. I will praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. So praying that the word of God would be glorified among the people, we realize in Psalm 138 too that God has magnified His Word, what He has given to us, even above His name. Pastor Chuck said, the key is prayer and the Word of God, and the combination is unbeatable. So like Paul, we should seek others to join with us in prayer for God's word to run swiftly, to be glorified in our lives, in our church, and in this world. And then he asks for protection, to be delivered, that we may be, verse 2, delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. You know, I was thinking about, as Dave was praying about Israel and some of the conditions in our world, as he opened up this morning, or this evening for us in the opening prayer, and I was thinking about, what about the believers who are in Gaza and the Palestinians that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they find themselves in a horrible circumstance? And I was reminded of a Egyptian man that I heard give testimony once about one of the wars with Israel when, as Christians... In Egypt, they were forced to join the army when they went to battle against Israel. 
And he said, we were praying, as scripture said, we were praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And we wanted Israel to be victorious, but we were Egyptian and we were the soldiers on the other side. And also, because we were Christian, they put us in the front line that when we went to battle, we would be the first to be killed. So he said, we didn't know how to pray, but we were praying in accordance to the word of God, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And the Lord caused a thing to happen that was totally unexpected to the Egyptians. The Israelis attacked Egypt from the rear and not from the front. And so all the Christians were spared death in that situation while Israel was victorious. So they had, for their their perspective, they had the prayer answered in two ways. God was working on behalf of Israel, but God also sparing the lives of the Christians who were Egyptians. And because they were Christians being forced to the front of the battle, what they thought was the front, but actually what became the rear, and they were totally safe. So Paul said, not all have faith, and that's certainly true. And so he's praying to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. This Greek word for unreasonable literally means that they're out of place. They were men who were morally evil and perverse. They had a hatred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were wicked or without worth or degenerate. These men were actively seeking ways in which they could harm the presenters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these unreasonable and wicked men not only came against Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the early church, but also against Jesus, who was, who is, able to bring true life. Paul knew, though, he knew the nature of unreasonable and wicked men because Well, he was once one of them. He was once a man who did not know true faith, who attacked the church. He was one who did not have faith. And yet Paul also knew that God can get a hold of a person's life. He can turn them around who were once unreasonable and wicked could become great powerhouses for the kingdom of God. So Paul sought the prayers of others that the gospel would run swiftly, that God would deliver them from these unreasonable and wicked men, knowing that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of the wicked, of wickedness in the heavenly places, that Ephesians 6.12 tells us that it is a spiritual warfare that we have joined into. And may our prayers be that the word of the Lord would run swiftly, that God's word would be glorified, and that the Lord would deliver us from unreasonable and wicked people. I believe we got a glimpse of this, though many in the world are trying to deny what happened on October 7th there in Israel when now I'm hearing numbers of up to 3,000 Hamas terrorists 
would like to use the word soldiers, but they were not attacking an army. They were attacking uh, women and children and teenagers, and they were doing horrific things, just cruel things, where over 1,400 Israelis had been killed, 363 soldiers, over 7,000 being injured. The IDF now have notified 200 families of the 240 who are being held hostage in Gaza. So not only killing and mutilating, but kidnapping and holding at least 240 hostage. To the date, the Israeli Defense Force have struck over 1,500 Hamas targets. Over 9,500 rockets have been fired by Hamas towards southern and central Israel. 500 have fallen inside Gaza. We think of rockets. We think of, uh, you know, the high-tech manufacturing of rockets. They were in Gaza ripping up. Uh, the water lines and streets, they make these. They're homemade rockets, so they fail quite often. And then also we have that of Hezbollah in the north getting increasingly worse on the northern side of Israel, that Israel is dealing with two fronts, one that they're actively engaged with, but one that they are guarding against at this point. And so not since 1973 in the Yom Kippur War has Israel officially declared war, but they did so the day after the October 7th attack. On October 8th, they declared war. And uh, we have now much of the world telling Israel to back off, to have a ceasefire, to allow a diplomatic, I heard this yesterday on the news, that there is, what needs to happen is a diplomatic solution. And I think they've been working on a diplomatic solution since May 15th, 1948, because on May 14th, 1948, Israel became a state, and May 15th, 1948, Israel was attacked by five different countries, and as a brand new nation, they had to defend their right to exist. So the diplomatic solutions have not been working. And uh, I'll give you my opinion of why in a bit. But of the wars, and I went over this, I believe, a month or two ago, we find that since the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, at that time, five Arab nations attacked the new Jewish state. As I said, May 15, 1948, and those nations were defeated by Israel in January of 1949. Then Egypt-Syrian alliance was defeated over the Sinai in the area of 1956. They had another battle. And then they had um, the 1967 Six-Day War. I saw the bullet holes in the walls of Jerusalem from the Six-Day War that are still there to this day. And so they were right in the heart of the old city at that time. Israel put down another combined effort in 1973 known as the Yom Kippur War. That was 
50 years ago and 50 years ago and plus one day they were attacked on October 7th, 2023. They have had numerous wars for their right to exist. And though our leaders call for a diplomatic solution between Israel and the Palestinians, what they failed to mention is that Gaza has been under their own control since 2005. Israel's disengagement from Gaza had a unilateral withdrawal from that area in August and September of 2005. And in 2007, Hamas was elected as the leaders of that area. So they're saying a diplomatic solution. The Bible does talk about a coming diplomatic solution there in Israel in Daniel 9:27, where it tells us about the Antichrist, the coming Antichrist. Then he will confirm a covenant for many for one week. That one week there represents seven years. And in the middle of the week, or three and a half years into the covenant, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering on the wing of abominations, shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined and is poured out on the desolate. So there is a coming diplomatic solution. I do not believe that the church will be around for that, because I believe the Lord will call and take his church home before that happens. But it tells me that um, there are those who are looking for such a solution in our world today, and it will open up a means by way of the Antichrist to introduce this peace plan. And there's so much that we could talk about that, even in that one verse, for the Antichrist to bring an end to sacrifice and offering. It teaches us that Israel has to have a temple and an altar in order to be doing sacrifices and offerings. That's something that they cannot do right now. So there's a lot that we could talk about, but we know that Israel is ready. If they had permission, and nobody's trying to give them permission to build a temple at this point, uh, that could be far off the table because they wouldn't want any more tension with the Middle East and Israel at this time, but eventually that will come about. Israel is ready, and I have read that within three or four months, as soon as they had permission, they could quickly build and be conducting. It doesn't mean that the temple will be totally finished, but they could erect an altar and begin sacrifices and offerings. So what are we to do? It tells us that in this world, we are to be praying. We're to be praying for the word of God to run swiftly, that God's word would be glorified in our lives and in this world, and that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked people. I think that's a great prayer in the day and age that we find ourselves in when everything seems to be so confusing and all points of this world, and even here in the United States, we'll look up little of that in a moment, but first let's look at verse 3, where we find that the Lord is faithful. He says, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And so here for our second point, we just need to know that the Lord is faithful. 
the enemies of the gospel against uh, they may come against us they are people without faith that's why they attack the church they have no faith and although we may at times be a people of little faith we need to remember that our Lord is faithful so we're dealing with the enemies of the gospel they are a people without faith Many times, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can be a people of little faith, but praise be to God that the Lord is faithful at all times. 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. He's faithful at all times. And it's because of the Lord's faithfulness that we have been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, God's faithfulness has made a way of our escape, has made a way of our salvation through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul closing out his first letter to Thessalonica, saying, He who calls you is faithful and we'll also do it. Paul has a confidence in the faithfulness of the Lord who will see to our, at that point, in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul was talking about the Lord seeing to our sanctification. That he who calls you, that is the Lord, he is faithful and he will also do it. He will bring us into our sanctification, our whole spirit, soul, and body, that we would be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And now Paul connects the faithfulness to the Lord, to our being established and our being protected. So the Greek word that's translated as established here means to set fast or to turn resolutely in a certain direction. The Lord literally, he can turn us around to set fast, to establish. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and our Father comfort your heart and establish you in every good word and work that God will establish us. And this is a prayer for the church. Though we are praying that the Lord might run a his word would have a free course, that the word would be glorified, that we would be... Um, delivered from unreasonable and wicked men that the Lord is faithful that he will establish us in every good work because he is the Lord who is faithful Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and so we're praying, verse 3, because of the faithfulness of the Lord, that God will establish us. We need to know that God will establish us. He'll turn us around. He'll set us on the right path. And that he will also guard or protect us from the evil one. He'll protect us from Satan. We need to know that Jesus, he's got our backs. 
our fronts, our sides, our everything. Now there is a psalm in Psalm 137 or I mean 134 or 139 that speaks about the Lord being before me and behind me. But it reminded me of St. Patrick and the poem that he wrote, Christ be with me. It goes like this. Christ be with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I rise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye, every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. We need to know that the Lord is with us and that he will establish us and guard us from the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray in this regards in Luke 11:4. He said, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we should be praying, Lord, protect us, guard us from the evil one. Paul tells us, Jesus tells us, pray this way. Do not lead us into temptation. God will never lead us into temptation. Well, sometimes he does lead us into places we may not want to go. I was thinking specifically of Jesus after he was baptized. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, drove him into the wilderness. Now there, Jesus would be tempted by Satan, not by God, but he was driven in a place that, for us, we would think, we don't want to go in the wilderness. Sometimes the Lord may lead us to places we would not want to go, but also the Lord is there to deliver us from the evil one. Jesus prayed to his Father in our behalf, saying in John 17:15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So Paul saying, pray that we would be guarded from the evil one. And Jesus tells us, pray that we would be delivered from the evil one. And then Jesus tells us, and we read of his great priestly prayer in John 17 that Jesus himself is praying that we would be kept from the evil one. And Paul confidently prayed in 2 Timothy 4.18, Lord will deliver me from every evil work, preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we should be praying. And the key is God's protection over us. It's not that we should never go through any hardships, but that he will establish us and protect us from the evil one in the midst of the hardships of our lives. So a little glimpse of what's going on in the United States. It's really been eye-opening, but yesterday this was a good thing and Washington, D.C., a coalition of Jewish organizations showed solidarity with Israel in the wake of the October 7th attack with Hamas when they, and I'm just reading the article here, um, 
They massacred more than 1,200 Israelis. That number is up to 1,400 and count now, mostly civilians. Israel declared war on October 8th. I've already mentioned that. First bombing the Gaza Strip and then sending ground forces into Palestinian territory to eliminate Hamas and free the 238 hostages taken in the initial attack. And the organizers of the D.C. rally estimated around 100,000 were in attendance on the news tonight. I heard 300,000. I'm not sure. It's a pretty large number, which is great. But I believe that this march was in response and is because of the numerous marches that have taken place around the world and here in the United States, here in um, many of the major cities, and then uh, in our college campuses. And the world coming in support of the Palestinians and not Israel. And so we see that this spontaneous march in support of the Palestinians came after the report of Israel bombing a hospital in Gaza on October 17th. The report stated that Israel has killed around 500 people, including doctors and nurses and staff and visitors and patients and children. But soon Israel and U.S. intelligence confirmed that the rocket wasn't fired by Israel. It was fired from Gaza, and it was one of their 500 misfires. But it didn't hit the hospital. It hit a parking garage next to the hospital. So the hospital itself was not in danger at all. And yet the protest against Israel continues largely based on the original reports. One of our own Congress members, Representative Raisha Tlaib continues to report the original story, making Israel the aggressor, using the phrase from the river to the sea. She was censured by the House, and then she was forced to explain that phrase, and this is what she said about it, and she put this on Twitter X. This is what she wrote. Tlaib wrote, from the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peace, peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. My work, my advocacy is always centered in justice and dignity for all people, no matter the faith or ethnicity. Well, that phrase, from the river to the sea, and... Israel has used it to say that they are going to maintain control in that area from the river to the sea, that Israel from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very narrow strip of land, but it's also a call to arms from pro-Palestinian activists, students, and college campuses, that for many it is a rally cry to eliminate Israel from the river to the sea. That has been the meaning of that term for many years. And now when the congresswoman got censured and then attacked over social media about it, she was trying to say, no, it, it actually means peace, peace for everyone. But I do not believe that's what she meant by those words. 
But why is Israel losing so much support here in the U.S.? Partly it's because the U.S. has turned away from God, faith in God, faith in Christ. Cultural Research Center, and this came from um, Ken Ham, and he's writing about a recent report that came out, a survey, and it really caught my attention when I heard the number of this survey. And so I looked up and found this article by Ken. I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. Cultural Research Center in Arizona Christian University recently released data from a survey of over 400 children. The survey sought to examine the prominence, prominence of belief in the seven cornerstones of the biblical worldview. Maybe we'll all learn something. I'm thinking, do we have seven cornerstones of biblical worldview? I guess we do, but I haven't heard of that before. And here they follow through on the seven points. They ask children, 400, ages 8 to 12, and the seven cornerstones are as followed. God exists and is all-knowing, all-powerful creator and ruler of the universe. Perfect creator and ruler of the universe. Cornerstone number one. Number two, as a sinner, and the only solution to the consequences of sin is to acknowledge your sin, ask God to forgive you through Jesus Christ, rely on him to save you from those consequences. Number three, sin is real and significant. We are all sinners by choice. Number four, your most important reason for living is to do what God wants. Number five, you trust the Bible because it is completely true in the and personal relevance and personally relevant in your life. Number six, the Bible provides a complete and reliable understanding of right and wrong. Number seven, success is consistently doing what the Bible teaches. So there's your seven cornerstones of biblical worldview. I don't disagree with any of them. I just never had them listed out like that before. But the survey of these 400 children from 8 to 12 found that just 3% of the children embraced all seven of these cornerstones. The major only agreed with one or two, rejecting or stating that they were unsure about the others. And that does not bode well, Ken Ham would write, that does not bode well for the adolescents, adolescents building a stable foundation that will lead to a robust and biblical world view. There's so much trouble in this world, and these troubles are not only in other countries like Israel, Ukraine, Russia, Iran, Syria, just to name a few, but they're here in the U.S. as well. But what we need to know is that the Lord is faithful, that the Lord will establish us, and he will guard us from the evil one. And finally, verses 4 and 5, verse 4 first. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. That you do refers to the things that Paul had taught and commanded them while he was with them, that the church is active and functioning. But also that you will do refers to those things which Paul was writing to them about, that the Holy Spirit would uh, teach them and lead them to understand as they grew in their faith. And so that's a good thing for us too, that we should have a confidence in the things that we are doing and also the things that the Lord will teach us in the future that we learn from the very word of God. 
In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the word tells us that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and the Lord saying, Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So Paul encourages them as a good teacher. But also notice his confidence is not in their ability, but in the Lord's. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. He didn't say we have confidence in you. In that which you do and will do in the things we command you. He said, no, our confidence is in the Lord. It's the Lord that will see that it will get done in your life. Philippians 1.6 said, being confident in this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And sadly, we too often try to accomplish the things of the Spirit by the work of our flesh. And Jesus acknowledged in Mark 14, 38, that the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, we must be a people who place our confidence in the Lord that in Him we will do, that we do and will do the things that He commands of us. In verse 5, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, into the patience of Christ. So the Greek word for direct here simply means a clearing away of all the obstacles. God is going to remove the hindrances from our lives. And, and I believe this has much to do with the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit is the one who first draws us. He woos us, as some would like to say, to bring us, attract us to Christ. And second, as believers, once we become believers in Jesus Christ, the Spirit enters into our hearts he seals us unto the day of our redemption, but also directs us. He clears the way of hindrances. He keeps us from knowing those hindrances that keep us from knowing the full love of God. That The desire here is that the Lord may direct us into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Let me clear the path for you the Lord might say. In 1 Kings 8, 57 and 58, it says, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. In the Old Testament, the prayer there was that the Lord would incline our hearts to himself. Here, Paul is saying the Lord will direct our hearts into the love of God, into the patience of Christ. It is the work of God in our lives, in us and through us. Proverbs 3, 6 reminds us that in all his in all your ways acknowledge him that he may direct your paths. I think it's so important that we be seeking the Lord. We would seek the Lord in these last days through his word, through the prayer, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that the Lord would direct our paths. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it teaches us that as the beloved of the Lord 
that we have been chosen by God from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.16, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God, our Father, has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation, a good hope by grace, that we might find that which the Lord who would direct our hearts, direct us to the love of God. And we should be praying. Like Paul here writing to the church in Thessalonica, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, into the patience of Christ. The love of God, <laughs> Paul said, this hope in Romans 5, 5 does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. In 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And as for the patience of Christ, throughout First and Second Thessalonians, Paul was writing about patience in First Thessalonians, just two verses. First Thessalonians 1, 3, he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of labor, your work of faith, your labor of love, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thess Thessalonians 1, 4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith, in all persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So Paul acknowledged at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, you guys have patience, you have faith, you're enduring persecutions and tribulations. And now he prays that the Lord would direct their hearts to the love of God and into the patience of Christ. As we come into the patience of Christ, we come to that place of being otherworldly minded, like Jesus who looked past the cross to his finished work, where in Hebrews 12:2 he says, looking to Jesus, the offer, author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He looked past the cross, for the joy that was set before them. The joy set before him was his finished work, his death, burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He was looking beyond the cross to the glory that would follow when he once again stood at the right hand of his Father. And we too have come into this patience of Christ to live with an eye for our future joy, that is set before us in this world. The world, the Lord tells us in this world, you will have tribulation, but thanks be to God that I've overcome the world. So we need to come into the patience of Christ, having the like-mindedness of Christ. May we have this confidence in the Lord that he would direct our hearts into the love of God, into the patience of Christ. Dave, as I close this in prayer, could you distribute the communion elements during this prayer time and then we'll uh, receive communion tonight.
And Father, we thank you for this study that you've given us in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Though often in a prophecy update, we talk about end-time events, and we looked at some of the things going on in our world today, but Paul here in this section wasn't talking about necessarily end-time events, but just teaching the church how they were to conduct themselves as they await your return. And Lord, we want to learn these things, that we would pray that the word of the Lord would have a free course and would be glorified today, that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked people, that we would be reminded of the faithfulness of the Lord who will establish and guard us from the evil one, and we have a confidence in the Lord that we would do and will do those things that you command of us, that, Lord, you would direct our hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. These are great prayers for your church to be praying in the day and age that we live in. So tonight, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive this communion, help us, Lord, to not only be reminded of your death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, but, Lord, tonight we've been reminded of the prayer that we would come into the love of God and the patience of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that blessing would be upon us this night. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight is... what we could not possibly do for ourselves in that he was, was the, the Lamb, Lamb of God, God is the Lamb of God. God. But looking back at it, we can say was at that time. But he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John the Baptist introduced Jesus. And that was certainly true of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, but there at the end of his ministry... That's when the lamb was laid out as a sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible tells us that it's by his stripes that we are healed. And the bread representing his body that was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And the cup representing the blood that was shed in our behalf. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus thus became that perfect sacrifice to become a covering of our sins. He took on the most horrific death. But more so than that, in the spiritual realm, he battled for each of us that we might be able to come into fellowship with God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And through, Lord, applying your blood and receiving your body, we have thus become children of God. And tonight, Lord, we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, not only to remind ourselves of the high price that you paid for 
our salvation there on the cross, but also, as Paul would say, as often as we eat the bread, drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So in one sense, Lord, we look back to the work that you did on the cross. In the other sense, we look forward, Lord, that you are coming again. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may eat the bread and drink the cup. Let's go ahead and stand together. Well, it's Women's Bible Study coming up this Saturday for the ladies. Um, Mike Wilson has surgery on his shoulder. I've had four of them. I know exactly where he's at at this time. And uh, be praying for his healing. Uh, Joe Stanonic last Wednesday had uh, a resident fireman in the church had his foot repaired and uh, is recovering. He had a rough day, I think he said on Friday, but he's doing better now and saw the doctor yesterday. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, Crystal also having shoulder surgery, trying to recover from that, a second surgery on her shoulder and uh, just had a rough go with that one. So a lot of wounded people physically in our church. I'm sure there's others. But uh, be praying for the body of Christ. May the word of God run swiftly in our midst. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.